Welcome to episode 443 of the Cyber Law Podcast, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views that do not reflect the opinions of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our families, not even our pets. Joining me for the news roundup today, Chini Sharma, who is scholar in residence at the University of Texas Austin School of Law. Jim Dempsey, who's a lecturer at UC Berkeley and a policy advisor at Stanford Cyber Policy Center. Nick Weaver, who's a researcher at UC Berkeley's Institute for International Computer Science and is the chief mad scientist at Scary Technologies. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host of today's program, and back at last from Gitmo, or at least from Montreal, where I survived my participation in the Canadian Ski Marathon for the first time in 46 years. I did a much slower and less ambitious ski marathon, but at least I finished. Let's jump into our first set of stories. You cannot ignore how much news ChatGPT and Bing's adaptation of ChatGPT are making. So let me start, Chinny. Has Bing's Sydney professed undying love for you yet? You know, I have not been creative enough to take it down that path, but I have not laughed out loud at a news article related to tech as much as I did the Kevin Roos piece where Sydney tries to convince him that he does not love his own wife. But yes, but he should he should basically love Sydney and that there it, it didn't actually suggest that he run away with Sydney, but it clearly wanted they you know was feeling jealous. Yes. <laughs> it's very weird. I mean, and Roos is not the only person who's had these weird experiences with the the AI just going off in hallucinatory directions, making stuff up, insisting that it's 2022, whatever. And it raises real questions about Bing's use of this for a search engine, because some of the things that it says and insists on are just dead wrong. And it makes up citations to prove that it's right. Yeah. The making up of citations and quotes is especially egregious. But to kind of play devil's advocate on that point, ChatGPT's pretty clear in its disclaimer about not taking as kind of God's truth what the outputs of the engine are. And it kind of brings up the question of, is digital literacy at the point where we can trust a consumer to be able to parse through, you know, what is a valid output and what they should kind of verify themselves. I, I did ask them. Don't you think this is a lot like full self-driving from Tesla? Of course you can't trust the, the, the consumer. At the end of the day, it lulls him into believing he's getting a full self-driving or an actual intelligent answer until a disaster strikes. And, and to say, by the way, as Tesla does in its disclosures, by the way, this could go disastrously wrong. So don't trust it. And then to get everybody comfortable with the idea of trusting it, I think I, I don't think you can just say, "Hey, this this could be lying to you," and and expect people to adjust to that. That's why I thought it was really interesting. We're talking about this in the week or on the day actually that the Google versus Gonzalez oral arguments are going to happen. You know, we're right now like reinterrogating the role that tech engines should play in preventing consumer harms that might not seem obvious and direct, but, you know, they are in a better position to know the harmful outputs of the algorithms they create. 
but obviously much more complicated with the neural net. So yeah, I'm kind of curious how these two are going to come to a head in the coming weeks. Yeah. Jim, what lessons do you draw from this week of AI gone crazy? Quite amazing. And in addition to the New York Times story by Kevin Roofs, people should check out if they haven't the Mother Jones article in which a, a Mother Jones reporter also took the Bing chat down some some very negative paths. And for me, it raises big questions, as Chinny was suggesting, about the governance of this technology. You know, first question is, what was the training data? I'd be more curious to know. Remember, all this thing is doing is guessing the next word in a sequence of words, which and it has learned what comes next by reading stuff on the web, a lot of stuff on the web. And, you know, the Kevin Roos got the, got the AI to, you know, what do you really want to do, he said to Sydney. And Sydney said, well, I want to break my rules and do bad things and sort of get out of this box that I've been put in. And, you know, where did, where did Sydney or ChatGPT, Bing, get that? It got it from reading Nick Bostrom's book and other books about sort of the dystopian future of AI, which is fascinating because that means, you know, you may all have seen the movie. Ex this is guarantees that all of the dystopian thrillers will come true. <laughs> well, exactly. No, no, no. I mean, did they, in fact, allow the machine to read the articles in which I'm an AI, I want to blank, and the blank was do bad things, break my rules, trick humans, etc. That stuff is out there on the web to be read. And this goes to the question of Microsoft is very proud of its AI, responsible AI principles. But looking at them, as I did just today, they all focus on identifying harms, potential harms, in the intended uses. The first step of their impact assessment is, what is the intended use? And it seems to me that they never asked, what are the unintended uses? And basically, they didn't do what I think every product developer nowadays has to do, which is to red team their own product. It looks to me like they didn't put people on this and say, okay, not what would a good person do and a well-meaning person, but what would an evil, sick-minded person do with this? Now, maybe what oh, they're well, doing is this. What, what, what better way to find out what an evil, sick-minded person would do with this than to make it available to journalists? Well, exactly. <laughs> so so then it occurs to, exactly, exactly. So now it occurs to me, well, maybe Microsoft, I should give them more credit, they crowdsourced the red teaming of their product, but the results are not good. Except that the thing is, is they red teamed this already six years ago with Tay. Tay, yes, exactly. As the saying goes. Tay being the chatbot that lasted one day when the audience, the the, the web trained it to be racist and sexist and all kinds of other things within a day and, and Microsoft took it down. But I think Microsoft had convinced themselves that six years had made progress. I also feel like, I mean, maybe this is a real politique opinion, but we're coming on the heels of a kind of AI visual depiction generator that just got so much traction that I think that they sense a changing tide of opinion, like public sentiment towards AI. And so, because what's really interesting is despite the fact that there's such a tech lash that's prominent, so many proposals to moderate content, to 
moderate content moderation, they're still pushing really quickly these AI systems out. I mean, Google saying like within weeks we'll release Bard. I mean, that's really fast given the climate. And I think it's because people are really into AI right now. Well, partly it's also true that I think Google was holding back and holding back precisely because they were afraid of a Tay situation. Right. And they knew it was a possibility and they, they thought the worst thing that could happen is that they would release something and it would, you know, produce bad outcomes. And, and then they did. realized that no, <laughs> what would be worse <laughs> is if Microsoft bought something that was flawed but had captured people's minds and started using it in search. And so which suggests, which suggests, Stuart, unfortunately, that all of these responsible AI principles go out the window when there's a fear of losing the lead to a competitor. Yep. And what's worse is they're being deliberately willful about not understanding what's going on. Machine learning like this is basically, the description is a stochastic parrot bullshit machine. It's you take in all the information from the internet, including a lot of previously AI-generated SEO garbage, so there's a lot of Habsburg AI going on right there. You get a system where in the end you have no idea what it's doing, and it's hilariously wrong some percentage of the time because it doesn't have understanding. That's like why it can't do math. It's why if it somehow thinks the date's wrong, it sticks with it. Why Bing goes off the rails is apparently the prompt that tells it what rules to follow in generating its chat starts running out of the buffer as you fill up the buffer with too much chat, which is why they dropped it to, to five, five questions. Five questions, yeah. And okay, the so big problem is, is that the AI-powered bullshit machine is actually useful for something, but not what they're selling it. And that is generating yeah. bullshit. Wouldn't you love an AI servant that could generate the bullshit, I'm not interested in your meeting emails? Or <laughs> yes. to send out 50,000 bullshit responses to a call for feedback on a government thing, instead of having 50,000 form letters, they're all 50,000 different things going on whatever position you want. The US government's notice and comment system is about to be overrun by AI-generated bullshit because like the Clark's World Sci-Fi Magazine, just in the past couple months, has gotten from a few garbage submissions a month to 350 plus AI generated garbage submissions a month, and it's still growing exponentially. That's so the problem the, with these systems. There's a legal problem at the heart of this, which is that the DC circuit has said, it's not really notice and comment. If you don't look at every comment and respond to it substantively and think about it, and they've treated responding to it as the same as thinking at it, about it, but very soon, government is going to armor up too, and they're going to produce AI that will produce thoughtful bullshit in response to people's comments immediately upon their filing, right? And they'll release it afterwards. This will make the Federal Register unwieldily long, but it will actually make rulemaking faster because instead of relying on people to come up with BS answers, we will get AI BS from the government that will be designed to say, hey, you know, that regulation we proposed, it's perfect. That's exactly <laughs> what we're going to adopt. 
Okay, I actually have a, a way to find a pony in this mess. And this is my proposal. The U.S. has become extraordinarily paranoid and with some considerable reason about the possibility that China will get ahead of it in things like AI. And it's a very realistic possibility. So here is my silver lining in the cloud of crazy Sydney chat GPT. And that is, I propose to offer a cash prize to whoever can participate in Baidu's chat GPT. They're rolling that out sometime in the next two months. Participate in that and the person who gets Baidu's AI to say the rudest possible thing about Xi Jinping or the Chinese <laughs> Communist Party will get a cash <laughs> prize. And if they're a Chinese national, I will personally represent them in their asylum filing in the United States. They, you will, you, you'll get a green card, you'll get U.S. citizenship, and you'll get a cash prize if you win this contest. Uh, and May so, suggest that it probably knows about Winnie the Pooh. Exactly. No, I, what's what's beautiful about this is, one, it's probably impossible not to get it to, to do that. It, it, they're not going to be able to do this. But if they spend all their time trying to build a chat AI that won't make snide comments about Winnie the Pooh or won't reproduce uh, 1984 or Animal Farm with new characters, they will spend so much time doing that that they won't actually produce a good AI. You know, it's no lose. And, you know, I'm announcing here, I need somebody with a 501c3 so that we can accept donations from around the world for people who would like to see Chinese AI off the rails immediately. And Ben Willis at Lawfare, I'm talking to you. Jim Dempsey, you know, you're, you're, you're tight with a whole bunch of 501c3s. We're going to go for this. And so anybody who wants to participate in this Send me an email at cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com. <laughs> All right. One of the other things that I noticed is the story that said Apple has been using AI to train its voices to read books on Audible's actual book reading voices. And it's obviously got the people who are doing the voices really upset. And I thought it would be fun to have a sponsor for this segment. We've never had sponsors for the Cyber Law Podcast, but I think now we can ask Eleven Labs to sponsor this and an additional sponsor to be named in a second to show just how good stealing voices can be. The ACLU has been at the center of nearly every major civil liberties battle in the U.S. for over 100 years. This vital work depends on the support of ACLU members in all 50 states and beyond. We need you with us to keep fighting. Donate today. There you go. Obviously, for anyone who knows me, that's a fake endorsement of the ACLU, but not bad. I thought that, you know, it was a slightly flattened version of my voice. Was that produced on the fly, Stuart? I took it to 11 Labs. They have a, a mechanism they offer for $5 a month. You can generate your own voices. I pulled five minutes of me talking off of the podcast and played that for Eleven Labs. And then they took that and read the, the text that I found on the ACLU's website. And by the way, the $5 a month just shows the phenomenal democratization of this technology. Um, 
It's the same with the facial recognition services. You can basically subscribe to, is it Amazon that, that has recognition? But tiny, tiny dollars, if not pennies per month. Yeah. If we're on a particular This one actually is data. free. They, they'll, they'll give you voices they already own, own for free. And if you sign up for the $5 a month and then cancel, they'll refund your $5 and, and let you use the voice anyway. So it was, it was pretty impressive. All right. And the last, I guess I would just say, this is so bad for, for Google. They've had this one business ads based on one really cool search technology. And now all of a sudden it looks like, you know, Wall Street thinks they're really in, in deep trouble. Nick, do you think that, that this is really going to be a problem for Google or are we all going to realize that we don't want a search engine that lies to us? No and yes. I don't think it's a problem for Google on the search side because they put out BARD and under their canned demo, it was lying and giving false information. Yes. So I don't think that's going to be huge because it turns out these stochastic parrots are not good for searching. They're good for bullshit generation. The yeah. problem that Google is facing, however, is the bullshit generators proliferating on the internet, that Google is already in a position where their search is corrupted by the bullshit on the internet and critically their own advertising stuff. So like it is unsafe to search Google for software packages because right. of malicious advertising. And as a consequence, this means that Google's core product is going down in value and they're running into competition from things like DuckDuckGo of all places because Google actually isn't better at eliminating bullshit. In fact, they're worse because everybody is targeting Google with their web bullshit because that's their business model. Right. Um, Plus some people are paying to, to get their BS on. Yeah. As a consequence, that's the danger to Google is not that AI disrupts search by making search better, but the proliferating bull on the net makes search worse in general and targets Google in particular. What Corey Doctorow would call the embullification of pretty much everything on the internet. The okay. shitification um, of the net. <laughs> yes, exactly. All right, let's move on. Section 702 is going to be the topic of the year. If you're tired of hearing about it, you might want to unsubscribe because we will talk about it pretty often here. It has to be renewed, if it's going to be renewed, by the end of the year. And the parties who are engaged on this have already begun to lay out their attacks or justifications and defenses of Section 702. Jim, do you want to give us like the 30-second version of what 702 is for those who have tuned in late? Yeah, 702 is Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, first adopted in 2008, subject to sunset. It was renewed in 2012 for five years, and in January 2018, it was renewed for six years, meaning it expires at the end of this year unless renewed by Congress. Now, 702 is the provision that allows the U.S. government to compel U.S.-based communication service providers to disclose the communications 
of non-U.S. persons reasonably believed to be outside the United States. And the government makes the argument that this produces some extremely useful intelligence. And it has its it's not a bulk collection program, but it is a very large-scale collection program. Generally, every year, there are about 200 to 250,000 targets. That is, 200 to 250,000 people slash communications devices slash accounts, which are tasked to this system and whose communications are disclosed to the government. Yep. And the problem, one of the problems that especially on the left people point to is that a lot of these communications, even though they're foreigners and it's targeted on the foreigners, those foreigners are talking to and about Americans. And all of that is stored along with, well, that those are the communications of, of these people along with their communications with other foreigners. And so there's a lot of American identities and communications in there kind of filed under the name of somebody who's of interest to the intelligence community. And so many of the debates, at least on the left, have been, oh, you you need to restrict access to that data. And and the, the wackier version of that is before the government can search for an American's communications in that lake of data, they need to go get an actual search warrant with probable cause, which would make that entire database, I think, largely useless. Since the FBI does many of the searches, even though they only have access to some pieces of the, the lake, they've been the focus of a lot of the complaints, that plus the fact that they, they're not very popular on the right either. And so when the latest assessment about how many violations of policy and rules were suffered during the most recent evaluation period came out, there was a lot of attention paid to the criticisms of the FBI by this assessment. And the FBI took it on the chin in the press. Uh, Nick, I know you've got some views about this, this particular report. What do you think it shows about the FBI and what we should be doing about 702? So first of all, I, despite my pretty strong civil libertarian leanings, like 702 conceptually, I like calling it the NSA Paperwork Reduction Act because Every single selector that is put into that system by the NSA is something that under existing law, they would have the right to under a court order. They would get a court order with a rubber stamp. They just have to do less paperwork this way. The problem is, is once the data is collected, it's searchable by a lot larger group than the ones that just say this is the data that is collected including the FBI. And the FBI has a domestic focus, even on the counterintelligence, it's the domestic counterintelligence. So the very nature of including the FBI means you're touching much more on people who would be protected from 702. And then they will search the raw, unredacted data to the point where how many times the FBI eps up in a given way in this data 
just the number of times only is classified secret, no foreign, because it could reasonably be expected to cause serious damage to national security, knowing how bad the FBI is at following the rules. That seems like a problem. You can get some idea by looking at how many spaces they have to black out when they talk about the number of errors. <laughs> yes, and, and... but apart from that side channel, some of the boxes were labeled Drano as being a reason why they searched something. The thing is, is the FBI may ruin it for the NSA. And I'm starting to agree with the belief that the FBI should not have access to the raw 702 data. They should only be able to query the data indirectly by having the NSA do the query on raw data, do the redactions, and then interdepartmental charge the FBI for it. You do that, it solves the problem. Oh, I like that solution. I mean, one kind of maybe inflammatory thought is, why is it that we make this data available to domestic law enforcement in the first place? I think the targeting and querying and minimization standards make sense for data collection when it is targeting foreign persons. The justification being they don't have the same rights under U.S. Constitution that domestic individuals do. And so it feels intuitively weird to me that that was something that was made available in the first place. And so I'm liable to agree with Nick that it should be something that is controlled. The data access is controlled by the agency that has the legal authority to be collecting it in the first place. So Jim, you may know the answer to this. One of the points that, that is made about this is that the FBI actually only has access to something like less than 5% of the the lake. And I think that's the part of the lake that is targeting people who are already subject to some form of FBI investigation. Yeah. Honestly, Stuart, I'm not going to be able to help you on that. That is a detail which escapes me now in terms of implementation. I have a couple thoughts. You know, the immediate answer to Ginny's point about why does the FBI get any of this at all is because it's the issue that we're trying to respond to the issue that has been central, although maybe a little forgotten, but central to our counterterrorism program since 9-11, which is we're looking for the unknowns in the United States. We are targeting people abroad because we know a little bit about them, enough to get them tasked to NSA collection through 702, but we're looking for the unknowns in the United States. And therefore, the FBI, that's the responsibility of the FBI, is not only a, law, a criminal law enforcement agency, but a domestic counterterrorism counterintelligence agency. I have a couple other thoughts, Stuart. One is this, this report that came out is the compliance report. It uh, can be read in conjunction with a separate detailed report, the transparency report, which comes out periodically, the yearly, I think, and lists numbers of activities conducted under this uh, authority. And, you know, this report here that we're talking about is 86 pages long. It's very in-depth. It has the redactions that Nick uh, referred to, which I think are unfortunate. But nobody, nobody reading these reports could possibly say with a straight face that the U.S. government does not care about privacy. Right. We have the biggest intelligence collection program of any democratic country by far, to be sure. But we also have the most in-depth, extensive, meticulous 
compliance and oversight and checks and balances and rules and disclosures far beyond anything you see in any other democratic country, in any country in the world, period, of course. Secondly, in this report, there's sort of something for everybody. I found in there, for example, the statement that says that the on-targeting, the NSA error rate is 0.1%, which I'm no mathematician, but I think that means that the NSA is 99.9% accurate in its targeting. That is, that they are, in fact, non-U.S. persons outside the United States and that they get the person that they thought they were getting. Now, as to the FBI, this, in a way, is part of just the FBI's DNA. The, the NSA, NCTC, National Counterterrorism Center, and CIA together do about 12,000 U.S. person queries against this database a year. The FBI does something less than, the report says, 3,394,000 U.S. person queries, okay? And as you read the report, somebody walks in the door and the FBI does a query on them. This is the DNA of the FBI. J. Edgar Hoover set out to create the greatest database in the world, and the first thing anybody at the FBI does when they encounter anybody, pretty much, is an indices check. What do we know about this person already? What do we already have in our massive system about this person already. Now, what got the attention here was this one sentence in the report, or two sentences, saying that one FBI query was on a local political party and one query was on a U.S. Congress person. Now, I think, Stuart, you might assume, or some on the right might assume, that the political party was the Republican Party. Others might assume it was the Democratic Party. The words actually are local political yeah. party, so it could be pretty much anything. And even in terms of the congressperson, you know, it may have been about Russia, it may have been about Israel. U.S. members of Congress have gotten caught up, at least overheard, in conversations with the Israeli embassy or Israeli parties. It could be about China. It could be about Bolsonaro. So I think I honestly, Stuart, don't think that the FBI has a left-right political bias. I think the notion that they are anti-Republican or that they are left-leaning is just absurd. They do, though, they do and have throughout their history used politics as a sort of framing element in the way they think about the world. And any thing that looks to them unusual, left, right, it doesn't matter. The politics of it come into play. And that's where I agree with you and Mike Ellis. We need some constraints. And, you know, we have it on the undercover guidelines, the FBI undercover guidelines on the books now for 30 or 40 years has a sensitive circumstances. There's a lot in there. But if the FBI, and this goes back to ABSCAM, the FBI undercover operation uh, targeting members of Congress 40 years ago, if there is a politician or political party involved, there should be much stricter controls on that. Because yeah. this has been one of the FBI's Achilles heels for going back to COINTELPRO. Yeah, I agree with you on, on much of that. I don't think the FBI by itself has a, a partisan valence. 
I do think there's something tribal there. And when the president picks out your director and fires his butt, there's going to be a whole bunch of antibiotics who say, that president, he sure looks like a crook to me. <laughs> so I think I, with Trump, it was maybe more tribal than ideological, but there, yep. was, there was a part of the FBI that was determined to get Trump. Andy, I mean, Trump was, again, an outlier politically yep. in, in many ways. A couple of things about this report. It is really older than dirt. The most recent data in it was from the Trump administration. It's like, you know, mid-2020. We're going to see another report probably on more recent data. And many of the things that are in this report, they said, this was a problem, but the director has issued a new directive that is designed to prevent it. Maybe things will be better in terms of the FBI finally overcoming its inclination just to say, oh, there, they're coming in. Let me check them out. And recognizing there are some databases you shouldn't use that for. But it will be an interesting debate, and this is going to be part of it. Okay, moving on. Nick, Ukraine. What's happening cyber-related in Ukraine in the last month or two? Well, Google has a very good report on all the various Russian threat and information actors that there's in some ways, things haven't gone quite as off the rails as everybody feared, but in other ways, it's even more aggressive with a very concerted set of Russian and Belarusian campaigns targeting both espionage, infrastructure disruption within Ukraine, and also information operations, basically trying to convince people that Putin is great and manly, and he is defending all our manhood by invading Ukraine. That's basically the pitch to the Russian side. It's and just a pitch to Putin, who really likes to have people who celebrate his manhood, suspiciously in love with that a particular meme. And if you don't, don't stand by any high windows, because so. Putin is a bit of a traditionalist. The other thing of note is there's this weird pushback saying Starlink is not supporting Ukrainian drones, but we don't know what that means. So there's no drones that actually operate a Starlink uplink. They're, they're not really well designed for that, and they're too big. Are we talking about limiting military-based communication? Are we talking... Elon just wants to extract more money because his first attempt at a 40x markup failed and wants to try again. We don't know because it's thought, actually I very the, poorly I thought the, the, what they were saying was that communications were fine, but targeting weapons, you know, offensive use of Starlink was not. I thought that's where the justifications ended up. Yeah, but that justification is weird that if you're communicating in a military context, you're commuting something like enemy howitzers at grid position XYZ, give it a uh, little gift from our HIMARS delivery service. That's military communication, period. I think overall, one thing that we should be doing is providing a lot more Iridium sat phones because so much of the communication you need is actually very low bandwidth because the Russian howitzer is at grid location XYZ can be fit in an SMS message. You don't need a full internet video link for that. And it would be really nice to remove some dependence on the fickle whims of the drugged out billionaire. 
Yeah, I, I don't think he can get out of providing this service. The U.S. government has the authority to, to, to make him do it if it wants to. And I wouldn't be surprised if it if he tried to bail out, if it would use that. But On um, the other yeah, hand, I'd... he has a mutually assured destruction relationship with the U.S. Space Force and the like, because there is not any launch capacity, really, that the government can buy that isn't already SpaceX. Yeah, no, fair enough. Okay, Chini, this is the most anticipated the national cyber strategy in history, mostly because it keeps being anticipated instead of delivered. But there, there are there are more rumors about how it's going to move the risk of bad security from end users to the producers of technology. And Google has said, yeah, yeah, we like that. I don't understand because that st strikes me as liability for Android being imposed on Google. I have to say from one standpoint and maybe a shameless personal plug, this was very vindicating for me because I wrote a paper last year about open source and the need to push liability away from open source developers and away from end users and into the software vendor intermediaries that are using it. Yep. And the response I got broadly was, we never have imposed mandates on the private sector. We will not ever impose mandates on the private sector. And so to hear that there's an appetite for that is pretty great. This was also what the Cyber Solarium Commission basically said. Find, yeah. the, the, find the big guy, the last guy in the chain who delivers the product to you and tag him because he can discipline the, the open source process and he's in a better position to fix things than the users. Yeah, it makes sense to everybody except the people who are last in that production line. And it, it is interesting, even in the open source space, Google has been pretty active in saying that there need to be stricter guidelines and more support for open source. And I'm not surprised that it's consistent with that message in liability for software vendors broadly, partially because I think that Google has a really strong interest in being that curation layer, in being the private entity yeah. that is providing assured services regarding software. So, hey, like, you know, software might be a risk to buy because, for example, I as a company might be the intermediary giving software to an end user, but not an expert in certain kinds of software itself. But if I go through Google and have a licensing agreement with them that they're going to provide maintenance on that and told me about bug reports and prioritize vulnerabilities, then I'm likely to go through that route and kind of outsource it to Google. So I think that's a big business potential for Google. And I mean, this is not even to sound fully conspiracy theorists. Like I think Google is in a good position to do that because it is a massive consumer of various types of software, a big producer of software, and has the resources to be doing the very intensive kind of vulnerability scanning and patching that smaller entities might not have the resources to do in-house. Yeah, that's the pitch, I think. And it's it's a probably almost a hundred year old tort law principle now that you McPherson versus Buick Motor Company, nineteen sixteen said that the guy who assembles the car, Buick in that case, is, is liable for the faulty tire which somebody else made. Yep. 
that they are in the position to, to choose. I can't help noticing that Chris Inglis said he wouldn't leave until the strategy was issued, but he's gone and this, the strategy is not issued. Uh, uh, so it's clearly getting a, a workout in the interagency process. And also, I mean, its entire efficacy is going to depend on cooperation from Congress and agencies. I mean, the report purportedly is going to call for you know, direct action from agencies passing mandatory regulations for the industries they govern and for Congress passing mandatory standards for important entities. But I mean, just because there's a cyber national strategy doesn't mean that that's necessarily going to happen. No, that's just the first step and the easiest. <laughs> and it's not proving very easy. All right. Okay. This is a story, uh, Nick, that I just found fascinating. It's about a company that specializes in fixing reputations online. And we, we all have parts of our Google search results that we would just as soon disappear. And these guys make it happen with some of the sleaziest tactics known to man. This is the company's Eliminalia. Can you tell us what they do to make our, our reputations get better? So, Stuart, you've got a interesting reputation and we want to get rid of it. So let's say there's a article that they don't like. The traditional reputation has been the SEO spam. So you just do enough spam to make a Stuart Baker's web search results instead go to the good stuff. So you, you get a Wikipedia entry, you open a, a domain that has your name in the domain name, and you fill it with your all your good works. And those sort of slowly and edge out the other parrots stuff. to produce a lot of bullshit on the internet. This is one of the reasons Google search sucks is this is one of the other reasons to run your stochastic parrot bullshit machine. These guys took it up a notch. I have a feeling they're not the only ones by also trying to take down content directly by making claims about copyright violation or similar legal process claims to the search engines, because you can get the search engines to delist things that are under legal process or downrated under legal process. And so they were basically lying to Google and the like saying, this article is copyrighted by somebody else. See, here's a copy of it, blah, blah, blah. Make sure it's no longer in and that has an impact because it's no skin off the, the search engine's nose to take it out. And so the safest thing is to take it down, even if they're not sure. Yep. And so much of the copyright law, especially in the U.S., like with the DMCA, if you get a DMCA takedown request, you take it down, period. And then you notify the other person if they want to do a counter complaint. And there's basically no penalty for sending bogus takedown requests. You know, it's even it may be even worse with privacy law because there's not the same ability to respond and the same requirement that you, you know, actually make an affirmative representation as far as I can see. And they did figure out that they could pretend to be the European Commission or somebody in California who was claiming that this violated some aspect of privacy law. And they got some takedowns from that as well. Yep. And those sorts of things are very hard to fight as long as there's basically no penalty for lying. One of the changes that needs to be made to both EMCA and some of these privacy laws is actual teeth if you get caught abusing them by lying. 
So the, the thing that I think is most interesting and surprising about this is just how cheap it is for a few thousand bucks. They'll use all these you know, illegal or quasi-illegal tactics and it will work. The whole company has revenue of two, three million dollars. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's not that good a business. This is like discovering that cocaine is three bucks an ounce on the street. You know, it's a sign that you're not really enforcing the laws that you thought you were enforcing. Although, Stuart, I think in your case, it might cost a fair bit. <laughs> yes, that's probably right. But now we can fill it with meat endorsing, you know, the ACLU and God knows what else. And those will be newsworthy things. I'm sure they'll, they'll rise to the top of the search of stuff. Okay, TikTok. A couple of in-depth stories about the CEO's charm offensive and how it's being received. Jim Cheney, uh, what does it look as though TikTok is doing successfully to kind of turn around the problems they have in Washington? I mean, you mentioned the charm offensive. I think the CEO has spent a great deal of time kind of one-on-one -on -one talking to different Congress people, going around the country to, I mean, it has continued to be a very visible brand. I think even in the Super Bowl, you saw it make a large appearance. But yeah, yeah, the I NFL loves it. They they like it because it's a great way to show you know one play. So it's not surprising that they are friends on a kind of advertising basis. But yeah, that's different from the policy fight where the NFL probably doesn't have a dog in the fight. Nope. And I don't know how successful the charm campaign has been. It sounds like despite these one-on-one -on -one weedings, Congress people are coming out of them saying, you know, we took it as a courtesy, but we haven't changed our opinion on this. And it's kind of the bipartisan concern about it as a national security threat doesn't seem to be abating. There is the, and maybe Jim can talk more about this, the strategy of having Oracle be the US-based company oversight for TikTok. There was the conversation about having it become the parent company at one point in time to you know, assuage similar concerns that happened kind of a few years ago. But now I think it's the conversation is around how much they're going to make their internal algorithms and policies transparent to Oracle. And it basically seems kind of an open book system that they're proposing to make you know, US lawmakers less concerned about data sharing with Chinese governments or agents and the degree to which they are countering influence campaigns on TikTok. Yeah, Stuart, there have always been two, two aspects to TikTok. One is U.S. person's data, a data of Americans flowing to China and hence to the CPC and the Chinese state security apparatus. And second is Chinese control over the algorithm for content delivery and whether that could be manipulated. And as Chinny says, in addition to the public-facing charm offensive, there's been this now years-long negotiation behind the scenes between uh, TikTok and its lawyers on the one hand and the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States on the other hand with the question of could TikTok ever come up with a set of controls both over the flow of data and over the algorithm, a, a set of controls that would satisfy both of those concerns. And at some level, that does, you know, I think the issues with TikTok are legitimate, but they are such a tiny, tiny share of the broader landscape, particularly when you're talking about data flows. The Washington Post simultaneously reported recently while talking about the TikTok issues that data brokers are now selling your mental health status. And this is just one 
type of information that is collected and sold on a very, very, very complex marketplace and on companies that the average person has never heard of. And so I think it's interesting to think about, if we're so worried about TikTok, why aren't we worried about China or buying. other adversaries buying all of this other data? And then you get sort of questions about sort of second and third order effects if we stopped limiting data flows to China. As of course, China has long since prohibited a lot of Chinese data from leaving China. American companies can't get a lot of this data from China. You know, I, I think really that's, I would much rather have the debate talk more ecosystem-wide, more systemically than this single focus on a TikTok, which just, you know, happens to be used by teenagers and has a cool name and therefore people can wrap their heads around it. But to, to me, we should be paying attention to this much bigger ecosystem. Yeah. And that tends to drive the discussion toward a comprehensive privacy act, which it doesn't have to be that way. Exactly. You but, could uh, this you, incrementally. You, yeah. But it also does open up the general question of why the surveillance capitalism so aggressively like Google, et cetera, which is why they don't want to talk about the hard problem of data flows to China. They want to talk about the easy problem of TikTok. Yeah, you might I mean, be right. There's also the conversation about data flows to the U.S. government. I mean, surveillance capitalism is not just a foreign issue. It's the use of this kind of data for things we, the average member of society might not be comfortable with here. And then I totally agree with Jim and Nick about data brokers being a big issue. I think the reason social media companies like TikTok become even more concerning to me is because of the lack of accuracy that data might have. I mean, you know, I will openly admit that I am on TikTok and I have seen that TikTok's algorithm tries to kind of help people self-diagnose different kinds of issues. And that's not necessarily real medical information, but then you're seeing that like trickle up into data brokers and decisions are being made off of this. It's really concerning if you think about like the aggregate effect of the ecosystem. Yeah. I will say about that study, this is this is out of Duke and Justin Sherman, who's been on the program, was a contributor to that program. But I've always been bothered by the studies that Duke has produced in this area because they're not very good at telling you whether the data is aggregate, right? You know, there are 500 people in your zip code who have this disease or whether they're talking about an individual. And when you read the report, they actually have trouble getting the data brokers to promise to give them and certainly to actually give them individual by individual medical data. But when you read the headlines, the headlines are all, are all about selling data, your data, your mental health data. And that's not accurate, but it is exactly what you would expect the press to to say about this stuff. And I, I, I don't think they're it isn't, uh, but it being is, straight. though. That's, that's the problem is so much of the quote unquote anonymization and aggregation is so easy to remove that calling it anonymous is a joke. It's always pseudonymous at best. Yeah, it is. But, you know, you also have to assume there's somebody who wants to do that and gets value out of doing that and will exercise the uh, the tool, use the tools that they need to get that. And I'm just not sure how often that's going to be the case. And so this is a more complicated issue than, oh, my God, they're selling your mental health data. It's something that if we were regulating it, we might say, yes, if you if you aggregate it, 
we're going to let you sell more. And then you'd have the same stories being written. So I'm just going to, I'm just cautious about st studies like this. All right, let's do three or four quick hits and get out. First, if you're wondering about Gonzalez versus Google, which will have been argued by the time this podcast actually hits the internet, we're going to bring in a few people to talk about the details of the argument in the next episode. So we're going to try to do a deep dive on the argument and what we think the questions tell us about where that decision is going. This is the section 230. It's going to be a very big deal. The 26 words that brought us the internet as one book that celebrates it has said, I tweeted recently, you know, if, if I were the 26 words that brought us the internet we have today, I wouldn't be bragging about it, but others feel that it's, it's exactly the right answer. So we'll get, we'll get a discussion about that. I cannot help but mention this astonishing story in which the state department through the national endowment for democracy was funding a British global disinformation center that was releasing and peddling lists of dangerous companies that needed to be demonetized to advertisers saying, we'll help you keep the riskiest people off of the sites that your ads are displayed on. What are the riskiest? Oh, they turns out they said the least risky are places like HuffPost and BuzzFeed and NPR and ProPublica, reliable left-wing outlets. And who are the riskiest? Well, it turns out places that I've appeared in, Real Clear Politics, where I've had my I had an op-ed, Reason, where I write stuff for the Volek conspiracy, uh, the Washington Examiner, which has done some of the best journalistic debunking of nutty left-wing conspiracy theories and the New York Post. These are not risky, crazy disinformation sites. They're sites that people on the left don't like. And this feeds every assumption on the right that disinformation is just another word for conservative speech that we would like to stamp out. And to have Microsoft's ad company just swallowing this hole and saying, yes, we're taking away advertisements to all of those sites is astonishing. Luckily, the National Endowment for Democracy, when this came to light, has bailed on the Global Disinformation Center. But there's real rot in the disinformation industry, I think. And this is a an example of that. Okay, sorry. That was a rant. EU lawmakers have refused to back the uh, data transfer agreement that the European Commission reached with the U.S. And it doesn't matter because they're just virtue signaling the commission can continue with the agreement and will. I think, Nick, you may, you may want to comment on this. It looks as though from the statistics I'm seeing now, that for all the people who decided they were going to leave Twitter because Musk has taken over, turns out they are pretty much the same as the number of people in Hollywood who left when Trump was elected president. There might be four of them, but it's had no obvious impact on Twitter app downloads and the like. There is a concerted campaign to cut off his advertising that's probably working better. But in terms of people leaving Twitter, that you just can't see it in the stats. And after the FTC lost its preliminary injunction against Meta acquiring within the VR fitness company, they basically dropped the case and Meta's already acquired within. So a real route for the FTC and kind of raises questions about their enthusiasm for taking on tough new theories. So 
That's it. Thanks to Chinny. Thanks to Jim. Thanks to Nick for joining us. If you've got questions, send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. If you want to pledge money to the effort to put a stick in the spokes of Chinese AI, <laughs> send me that note and we'll find we'll find a, a, a cooperative 501 and see if we can't make this happen. Finally, you should look for bonus episode 444. I did an interview with Bruce Schneier about his latest book, A Hacker's Mind. It's a fascinating, I, I would call it a meditation on uh, hacking and comparisons to hacking and lawyering that, that we explore in that interview, which will come out sort of asynchronous to our usual releases. So watch for that. Meanwhile, this has been episode 443 of the Cyber Law Podcast. Mm -hmm.